Satish, I have a very important question for you. I know you just recently came back from a great vacation, and I'm very interested in how you decided to take vacation on Easter, because I think it's a fantastic way to potentially avoid crowds. Was that the case? Absolutely. <laughs> we left on a Thursday. Crowds weren't too bad. It was a lot of fun. So when you uh, were looking at the calendar, because I think Easter is, is potentially, because I always like, you know, uh, life hacks, vacation hacks, where Easter seems to be a holiday where people don't travel far necessarily. They're usually staying maybe close to home, seeing family, doing family things, which is great, which is what I did, which was fantastic. But uh, I know you, you actually went to Mexico. So is, is my guess, right? Was there like less crowds? Was it cheaper? Was it... Uh, just more enjoyable, or or am I wrong? Do people travel on Easter, and I just didn't know that? People travel on Easter. Uh, coming back on on Sunday, it was the airports were packed. On Sunday, really? On Sunday, yeah. And, and actually, what made this Easter even more unique was it landed on uh, April Fool's Day. So <laughs> there was an Easter egg hunt that we went to, and inside the eggs were uh, vegetables instead of chocolate. Oh. Oh, we, we have, you have children, right? Yeah, the kids were not happy. Were they, was it like crushing? Was there crying involved? Was there, there like just sulking? What happened? There was shock of what is this? What is this green stuff in the egg? <laughs> That's I like, awesome. I was, I was like, this is good for you. This is how we do Easter in Mexico. <laughs> That's awesome. That, so that, that means they will never go back to Mexico for Easter. Exactly, which is, uh, which, is, which is all part of the plan. This way, just me and my wife can go ourselves. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, good, man. Sounds like you had a good time. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, uh, we, April Fool's, uh, my wife really did all the work. So my son uh, got up and instead of like running down and seeing an Easter basket, he, he saw an Easter basket of just stuff he had in the, um, and my wife wrote a little Easter, uh, a note from Easter Bunny saying, you know, I decided to just give you all the stuff you had since you have so much. And then at the bottom, it was April Fool's, but it was very hard for him to read. And then he had to search around the house for stuff. So it was good. I actually think April Fool's and uh, Easter go together well, because it kind of makes it a little bit more fun, a little bit more exciting. It does. Hmm. All right. Well, Satish, the reason I wanted to have you on today was I wanted to talk about one of my favorite subjects, and I think one of your favorite subjects, product management. And I'm going to go even further and say it's uh, what I believe is maybe one of the most <laughs> misunderstood uh, functions uh, in maybe all of corporations or just in industries in general. So I know you have uh, a fantastic uh, career of experience in product management. And I, th I thought we'd start with like the most basic question, which I think is potentially sometimes the most complicated. Like when we talk about product management, how do you find, how do you define product management? You know, product management to me is, is that role is the, the, you're the quarterback of the team. You have to be able to manage and look at what's going on in the market. You have to manage the technology in terms of the resources, you have to set expectations with the sales team, and then operationally make sure that you have the financial uh, budget to do what, uh, what is dictated from a business, uh, business goals perspective. And so it's, it's a very tough role because you're managing all of that daily. And so for me, what I got involved in, the, in this role because my first job out of college was a company at the startup at the time called Multimedia Games. And I was designing 
casino games, uh, the hardware that go into casino games. And so since we were a small company at the time, any issues that occurred, any problems, I had to fix it. But then I was also selling those products and understanding whatever I was building, how it was going out in the field and getting that feedback from a customer. So that role really helped me get exposed to other areas outside of just engineering. And so product management is really a cross-functional role. You have to work with finance, you have to work with sales, technology, business, and be able to really be disciplined in making sure that as a product manager, the, the product itself is actually being correctly delivered to meet the customer's expectations, not the salesperson or not the technology. So it's a, it's, you're, you are the quarterback, but it, to me, it's fun because you're getting exposed to so many different areas in a, in a company. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I think, you know, one way I like to define product management is like, uh, if, if no one else is doing it, it's, you probably need to do it. Because <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things that are going on when building software products, and a lot of things can slip through the cracks, right? That And that's, uh, to your point about having the quarterback, it's either like, you know, sometimes it's me and the quarterback, but sometimes it's like, well, someone's got to go figure out this licensing issue, right? That's probably on you, right? You probably got to go find the lawyers and talk to them. Um, and I, so it is, I think it's one of those roles that is, is constant. And I think that's one reason when we talk about like people not necessarily understanding is it can be really different at different places because of things that need to be done for different corporations, right? Um, so I totally agree with you. Now, I think your career, I think often mirrors what I see a lot of different people getting into product management. It sounds like, you know, you were an uh, you know, application engineer, like you said, developing stuff. Now, did you just have a natural interest in like going out to meet customers or was it kind of thrust upon you? Like, how did you find yourself kind of out talking to these customers? You know, for me, you know, typically my personality is a lot, you know, I'm, I, I like to talk a lot and, and, and I'm very outgoing. And in the engineering world, it's more introvert. And so for me, the reason I enjoyed it was I like getting that feedback from a customer as I was actually building these products. And what was happening was I was working with the sales team and I was actually the one closing these opportunities. And so I learned real quickly that I could balance design and then balance the delivery uh, and closing and just connecting all those dots. And so I think you have to have that right type of personality where you can be outgoing, uh, understand what's going on in the field, and then bring that back to home. And and so um, I think it's just more of, uh, you know, when you think about product management, you, you're really a mini CEO. And to be that type of person, you have to hear from the customers and then realize, you know, and then set expectations on reality versus dreams, right? And so when we used to bring a uh, build a lot of our products, I would go out in the field and come back with completely different feedback. And we were luckily able to use this pivot a lot quicker just because of that versus being in a vacuum and, and, and being more hypothetical versus reality. Yeah. I think, you know, what I find is I think people who are really successful at product management sort of have something about like wanting to go out and talk to the customers. Cause I, you know, I got into product management in a very similar way. I was, uh, in software engineering, you know, just building products, kind of like, you know, back at the home office, you know, thought I knew it all. And it was just like, wow, these guys, they, they just don't know what they, they just keep messing up my requirements, right? They just keep messing up my schedule. Why do they keep interrupting me? And then I got a role in um, basically technical sales, sales engineering, right? And that was, for me, I always say that was sort of like my MBA. I flew around, 
with one of the sales guys and I just like gave demos, answered questions. And it, it was just like this whole new world, right? It was like, oh wow, wait a minute. Like these guys, these people out here, these customers have so much different expectations about what they want. And, you know, I really, and that's really what I got interested in was like, Hey, I really want to bring this information back and, you know, kind of give it to the engineers and work with the engineers because like, we think we could build a great product. So I think anybody that's getting, that's even considering about product management, that is like one thing to ask yourself, like, where do you derive energy? Do you derive energy from going out and talking to people and giving the demos and like figuring out what they want to do? Or are you more challenged? Like you just want a really hard engineering problem. And you just want to kind of like work on it, um, you know, by yourself, not necessarily by yourself, but with the team and, you know, kind of like very introverted, quiet, deep thinking work. Because I think that gives you a sense. Like, I think like really deep thinkers building the, you know, the next great algorithm probably are the kind of people that go on to become like your big time architects and CTOs. And I think <laughs> to your other point, someone that likes to talk a lot and talk to people is probably going to find their way into product management. Because I think, I think in some ways product management uh, can find you. Uh, along along your career so I like that now something you said there I think is interesting because I think it's somewhat controversial sometimes like you will hear many many people say in product management I'm the CEO uh, of my product right I'm like a mini CEO now one thing I've noticed is that the role of a CEO and the role of a product manager are actually pretty different as far as, far as power right like a product manager in most organizations doesn't have a lot of people reporting to it to them um, and then a CEO obviously typically has everyone reporting to them so do you have you noticed this like the idea of like management by kind of direction and authority versus management by influence is this something that you've thought about when you think about product management absolutely and I think it's interesting is as a product manager okay you're, let's say you are you are in charge of that product well, just because you're in charge of that product, a CEO's perspective is very different. They're looking at, in, in that world, they're looking at, you know, uh, it could be raising capital, they're looking at their competition, they're looking at funding, they're looking at what the competition is doing, they're looking at how do I increase revenues quarterly. So their, their dashboard, their mindset is different. And so the product manager really has to align with the CEO and make sure that the CEO is getting that correct information. They're, uh, they're, you know, from a CEO perspective, you're trying to grow a company, you're trying to increase the value. And just because you're leading a product, you have to make sure that that product is actually growing value for the company as well. So you have to, there's a balancing act. And I think what's happened a lot is a lot of the product managers we see, their skill sets are different. And it just depends on how, how far you're willing to go. Like, I mean, for, for me, for example, I like P&Ls and financial statements. I can do projections. I, I, I got into that because now I can actually see the reality of, okay, if this product sells, here's how much we're making from a revenue perspective. Here's what that means for the valuation of a company and then tie that back in. Uh, and then, of course, you have to look at all of the, uh, I think a lot of the, one of the main skill sets, and you mentioned this earlier, that I think a product manager should be really good at is looking at contracts, understanding agreements. Those things are what separates, I think, the, the great product managers from your typical, hey, I'm in charge of a product and we're on schedule. And nothing wrong with that, but I think that defines, that changes the dynamic of a company. And if you can find someone that can encompass a lot of those skill sets, you'll see companies be a lot more successful versus just kind of still being a steady uh, trajectory. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, one thing I like to use or the phrase I like to use sometimes is that, you know, especially when you're working with your executive team or your CEOs, is that the thing that you can be, right, that I think a product manager is uniquely positioned to be is, is kind of like what I want to call like chief truth teller, right? Like if you're a CEO and you're just doing all the things you just said, right, you're figuring out your financials and maybe building out the sales team, you're uh, raising money, right, you're doing press interviews, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty busy guy, right? You have a lot going on. But if you can be kind of the, the trusted source of information to, to the CEO, tell them exactly what's going on. Now, I don't necessarily mean like you don't have to be like overly negative. You don't have to be overly positive. Like you have, I always think of it as like the unemotional truth. Like here's exactly what's going on. Here the, here's when the release schedule is. This is why the release schedule is this way. Here's what we're building and why we're building it. And here's some choices, right? Here's some choices that we're kind of facing because kind of, you know, um, think about like, you know, every executive is really busy. So if you can bring convert or decisions to them that are framed up that, you know, do require, you know, executive level information, like, you know, we've got a couple markets we could go out here, but we can only, you know, spend time really on one or we could do one really, really well, or we could spread our eggs a little bit uh, wider. I think that's the kind of stuff like to me, when you have that level of relationship with, you know, your CEO and the CEO is receptive to kind of hearing that and you've also found the way to deliver it, then you're at a place where I think you're working on the best problems or the hardest problems around your business. And um, I won't say that's necessarily easy, right? I think that's both being good at your job and knowing kind of what it takes to do product management. But at the same time, that takes a lot of relationship building with the executive. Cause like the first day you show up, right? You know, oftentimes if, you know, as a co-founder or a CEO has been a founder of a company, right? They have all this history and, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not going to be super receptive if the first thing you say is, man, we're just in the wrong market and this product sucks. <laughs> like no one really wants to hear that. But um, I think if you work somewhere for a while and you can build up that credibility, then, you know, potentially you're at a place where you can start to save the company a tremendous amount of time and money because, you know, you're the one guiding that roadmap and you're kind of taking some of that, that work away from the CEO where they can go and raise money and they feel real confident that you have it. So I don't know, what has your experience been? Is, is that relationship uh, as important as I say, or is it more about just, you know, just being good at your job? No, it's very important. I mean, if, if you don't have that type of close relationship, typically you see a lot of friction and that friction is really more of, I think, a lack of communication between a CEO and a product manager. But if they're both in, you know, the CEO is the vision, right? I'm, that, that's the person that has this huge vision and they see things in a very different dimension. And the product manager's job is to help enable that and do it. And sometimes it, it, it pushes the product manager outside of their comfort zone, but that's what's needed uh, a lot of times. And so you kind of have to have the open-mindedness to, to go along and you have to trust the visionary of the company. And Typically, what I've seen is if that relationship is hand in hand, really good, um, it, it, it just, you move a lot quicker. And because you move a lot quicker, you're able to find a lot of more opportunities and strike at the right time. And versus, well, let's, you know, build another beta platform for you and let you know. You have to be quick in these times. And so a lot of these big companies, unfortunately, they have so much infrastructure, they can't just quickly, if there's a new competitor that's doing something similar in a, in a different industry, they can't just easily spin a product overnight. And usually it's because of the bureaucracy of, well, are we sure we want to do this? Let's have meetings and look at this. And so 
my in my experience what i've always preached is it's okay to be nimble it's okay to go fast and quick and fail quickly and when you do that you learn a lot more and you actually do it with a lot less time and money to be honest yeah i think you know you, you hit on like i think a really important topic about how does product management necessarily differ between a really large corporation and a startup so i think you're talking about the the bureaucracy that a large company has so like when you're in a big company and you're taking on the role of product management, like what advice do you give someone? Like how should they be maybe thinking about that a little bit different than being working at a really small company? I think in a bigger company, it's, it's really important to over communicate um, because what happens in the bigger companies, you get siloed, you have so many different groups and organizations. And so if you're over communicating what's going on, that's going to get on the radar. Um, and then being proactive and going to the decision makers and stakeholders and, and, and keeping them updated. Those things, if you're proactive, you're going to see a tremendous change in how quickly you can get new projects accepted, uh, pivot a lot quicker. But also, it's, you're also, all it is is you're building a, a really good relationship that, that when things happen, you're able to quickly move. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, you know, it's, again, it's like maybe everything in life, it comes back to the relationships you, you build. But also the thing I would add to that is, you know, understanding the strengths and weaknesses, like all products, right? All products have strengths and weaknesses. And I think oftentimes people in large corporations or the kind of the cliche is like, oh, we're really bureaucratic and we're really slow, which is, I mean, those are just facts, right? That is typically 100% true. But the the flip side of that is you know you have a lot of infrastructure behind you right like you usually have like a sales team you have existing relationships you have you know existing conferences you can go to and an existing marketing engine so while you won't go as fast right you have a big machine behind you that if you can get things right right over and it won't happen overnight but if you get them going in the right direction you know all the things that a startup has to do like go build a brand right go out and build demand generation from the beginning and go hire salespeople um you know you don't have to do those things so it's sort of you know to me it's always one of those things that's like you know because i do think i found my in my career like having worked at both right there is always a grass is always greener uh scenario right whereas you know you're in a small company and you're like, oh, I want to go do this thing. And it's just, it's just, you can't do it because it's just companies never done it. doesn't have the infrastructure. And then at a big company, it's just the opposite. It's like, why do we have to go through 30 checkpoints to get this product out? Right. When our competitor is doing it so fast. And the reason is they have a lot of contracts and liability. Right. So, so I think, you know, knowing where you are, if you will, situational awareness really comes down to like knowing what you're just like your product, knowing what your strengths and, and uh, weaknesses are, and then trying to take advantage of them. So I think it's really, really important. And I think also it's important that the, the employee is motivated to do that, right? You have to be motivated to, to take on that responsibility and challenge. And a lot of times uh, employees are not motivated. They're just, you know, they're just there to kind of get through the day. And so it goes a lot back to, okay, if you're working in the product management role, are you incentivized to really move the needle? And it takes that type of mindset. And a lot of times people just, they just kind of get uh, relaxed too much and you have to be uncomfortable to go and challenge the company and, and, and it'd be okay to say, no, we don't want to do this. And that takes a lot, right? Because you don't want to be that person, but a product manager, their role is also to say, no, we shouldn't do this. Here are the three reasons why not. And you have to have that courage as well. 
Yeah, I think you're getting, I mean, you're probably getting to like the number one thing I think people need to think about, especially large companies, is this culture, right? Like when you join that company, because most people will come in, like I, I have a, a colleague that says like, uh, you know, most people start a job, like they want to do a good job, right? Like when you start a job, especially your first day, like, you know, you just really like, hey, it's new. It's like the first day of school, like you want to do well. And, you know, you come in with all this energy. And I, you know, I think um, from a leadership point, as you bring people into a company at any level, right, it's like, how do I keep somebody that enthusiastic, right? Like, how do I keep that energy level up? So if we have bureaucracy, it's like, maybe we acknowledge it, but we also kind of like, really, if you will, reward people kind of pushing, right, pushing to do that. And I think to your point about where things time, sometimes go wrong is where people, whether it's true or not, where people feel like they're not rewarded, right? The person that asked to do something new kind of gets a whole bunch of more work and is, is often like, you know, um, talked, maybe not talked bad about, but is sort of viewed as frustrated or frustrating to the executive. So that's something I think you can do in an interview is try to like discern what kind of environment you're going into. Cause you're right. Cause I mean, I think there is, there's always a, um, the potential for apathy to set in. Right. And then you're, you're kind of just checking the list, checking the, um, items off a list, which is, which is definitely not fun. So mm -hmm. I think you have some really good points there. All right. Well, let's, that's sort of the big company. Well, let's talk about what I think you're doing um, a lot more of these days. So right now I know you are working over at Austin software consulting, not surprisingly it's located here in Austin, Texas. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and what Austin software consulting does? Cause I think that'll lead us into a good discussion about what maybe startups are doing. Absolutely. So Austin Software Consulting was started, uh, my other partner, by Jason Parrish back in 1995. And Jason had uh, his background. He had started and sold a couple companies, uh, gone through some IPOs. And what really, I think, uh, differentiates what we do versus everyone else is the people on our team have all started and sold their own ventures. And we've selectively decided we want to take our skill sets and help companies out through everything we've messed up on. We have made all the mistakes you can think of, and we want to apply that and help companies out, whether it's through technology development, like let's say you need to build a mobile application or e-commerce website. Uh, then the next component usually, okay, once you have a product, how do you, how do you get consumers? So we do a lot of, we do a digital marketing, SEO campaigns, Facebook ads, um, then we do email marketing campaigns, uh, list building, and then we focus, I think our strengths are really also on the security side. Um, you know, obviously we're hearing a lot of things on the hacking. So we, we do everything from making sure your email servers secure to SSLs properly installed payment gateway. Uh, and then really, uh, then usually there's also a lot of analytics in terms of building, uh, dashboards and helping companies look at what's going on from a day-to-day -day basis. So Austin Software Consulting is really uh, really a formation of a bunch of guys here locally that uh, have a passion in what they do and doing it professionally. Our business has been 100% referral based. Uh, you, you laughed at the, the name, but guess what? When you Google, we're pretty quick on Google search just because people look for Austin and software, right? And we pop up pretty quickly. Uh, so, so there you go. There, Appreciate. There we, that's right, man. You've got your own SEO going there. It's good. It. It's the way to go. And, and what, one of the things we also have done is we've taken our technologies that we've built and we help companies out. So for example, we have our own email marketing platform, list building platform, SEO. So we've taken our own, 
sauce and we're applying it to other companies, uh, particularly in the e-commerce world. A lot of, you're seeing a lot of people getting onto um, uh, Magento and Shopify. Well, those platforms are good for a certain amount, but then when you want to scale, there's usually a huge problem there. So we've taken some concepts of building a middleware component to help you scale with those type of e-commerce platforms. So we're really taking our leadership, our thought process, our critical thinking, and f help finding companies. 95% of the companies that come to us, they've already gone through some mistake and we're fixing that. And so um, we're all entrepreneurs on staff, but we, we like helping other companies and, and it's, it's been fun. That's awesome. So I think let's like walk through the process. Cause I think you talked about like everyone, uh, a lot of companies are already making the mistakes. So, you know, everybody has an idea. Now we are all entrepreneurs. So I, I like to say, right. Like everybody is thinking about something they probably want to build um, often some type of, you know, an app or software uh, solution or a website. So let, let's walk through maybe two scenarios. Like what would be the perfect customer coming to you? Like what would they have already done? What would they have and how would, how would you like them to engage with you? The, the perfect customer that I've always loved is the one that is already generating revenue, whether it's a thousand dollars or a million dollars, it doesn't matter, but they've generated some revenue and there's data around how they've generated that revenue. So what does that mean? The data could be, let's look at your Google analytics. If you've done some campaigns, let's look at your Facebook analytics. Let's look at your customer base uh, and see why did you get those customers? And then where our secret sauce is, is optimizing that so you can go faster. Uh, I'm, I, I consider myself a scaling expert. I love scaling companies, whether you're starting at zero, 10 to 100, whatever it is. I come and I've been luckily involved in a couple of ventures. And to me, scaling is all it is, is optimization and proper planning. So my ideal customer is someone that at least has some customers and some sales because that to me is I'm a data guy. I can look at that and say, here's how we can potentially optimize and help you scale and grow accordingly. So I think that's sort of, you know, loops around to the, you know, the classic like Mark Andreessen article. Like I think if there's anything you should read about product management, it's, it's that article that he wrote a long time ago now about product market fit, right? And the whole idea about, you know, finding product market fit is really kind of validating that like whatever it is you're trying to do, people will pay for, right? And if you took, I think, you know, the easiest way from a statistics standpoint is like, if you went up and surveyed a group of customers that are using this thing that you've built and you said, you know, if I took this away from you, would you be, you know, very disappointed, dis disappointed, neutral, don't care, really don't care. Right. And so you really, you know, ideally, right. You want to be something like 40, 50% of the customers you surveyed would be like really disappointed if you took it away. So like for me, right. You know, probably like a lot of people on here, like, like if you took away my, my iPhone, I would be very disappointed. I'd probably cry. I'd probably just be like, I don't know what I would do. So that's a great example of um, product market fit. Whereas if you took away a lot of the other software solutions I use, like, I don't know, expense reporting or, you know, the millions of other things, I, I probably don't care, right? At least I don't, I'm not the target customer for that, right? So, um, so I think what you're hitting on there, right, is like you, you, you want someone that's sort of, you know, proven, I would say the beginning of product market fit, right? They've they have some revenue coming in. They believe the solution's good. And then you can really help scale them. But so that's, I think, you know, to me, that's like, that's what we all want. So let's go maybe the other scenario where it's like, well, someone has an idea. They believe they have an idea that's good. Um, 
what should they do? Should they even call you or should they work on their own? Like what, what do you think they should be doing? Well, you know, I, I get this a lot. And what I tell people is go get, go get objective data that proves that what you believe is true is actually true. So what does that mean? Go try to get 10 customers or even a survey that says 10 people, 10 to 100 people are willing to be interested in your service in some capacity. And those people cannot be your friends or family. <laughs> That's good. Good. Right? That's like a good warning signal. No friends or family. I like it. No, no friends or family. They, they'll, they'll tell you, they will never tell you that your baby is ugly, right? And so it's really hard for people to, to do that. And, and luckily now we live in a world where you can literally post on Facebook, hey, I'm thinking about doing an idea. Can you please fill out this Google form? Uh, what are your thoughts? And, and, and push that out. And getting that information is, is good. But also I always tell people, who is the competition? Are there competitors in your space? Because I love it when there's competitors. Uh, you know, people laugh, thought I was crazy going against Groupon. But to me, Groupon did a great job for us when we're doing the lunch deal of validating the market. And I was leveraging their marketing dollars to, to tell how we were different and unique. So if there's competition, that's good because that means there's some type of validation in the market. So if there's competition and if you're objectively getting customers feedback, those two components, you have something that you know you can move to the next level. Yeah. So why don't you tell that story? Like, so I think, cause I think what you hit on there was um, I, I would often call that too, like just discovering latent demand. That's usually where like a lot of products are going to come from, like a problem that does exist, but often people haven't thought about. And I think maybe, you know, your, uh, your Groupon, uh, I'm going to say it wrong. What was the company called? Lunch? What was it? The lunch was, deal. The lunch deal. I think, you know, you told me that story and I, I think it's good because I think you sort of found a problem inside um you know kind of these daily deals that people weren't necessarily thinking about so you want to tell that story real fast sure so you know what the honestly when groupon first came out they were only doing one deal a day and every three or four deals was a dining deal and i was like man the dining deals are awesome but let's just focus on a niche so we did the lunch deal where we would do four dining deals all over austin and cater to the foodies in town well you know, quickly as, as the space got crowded, uh, businesses were suffering because people were not redeeming their vouchers. And then I found a loophole through uh, the Credit Card Act where if you're a business that's, that's uh, incurred some of these liabilities, you have to pay taxes on that for services that have not been redeemed. So we switched our model to make it, uh, made a mobile web application where you can come in, I can use the coupon, it gets redeemed real time. and the business pays me a transaction fee. And so we, we flipped the model and that helped us get more consumers quicker uh, and businesses. And we were, we were being smart with our dollars. And so this is a perfect example of, you know, if there's a big competitor out there, learn from them, see what their weaknesses are. And as a startup, you can, you can pivot very quickly and not have to worry as much about uh, uh, being left behind. So that, that's a, it's a cool story because I think, you know, kind of comes back to like, I think you described it as a loophole, but like, where did that come from? Like, did, were, did you literally sit down and like read some uh, regulations or did like a restaurant owner kind of like, you know, just complain one day? It's like, ah, this, this thing I'm doing is, is, is really a pain. Like, where did that idea come from? 
Well, what was really interesting was we were doing really well with the existing Groupon model and people loved it and it was working, but this is a perfect example. I went back to my customers, the restaurants, I would email them, what are things we could change for our, as a service? So I was really trying to get feedback while we were doing a good job. And let me tell you, it was hard to pivot. I mean, the investors were thinking we were kind of crazy to do that, but I told them, um, as I started hearing the feedback from the restaurants, uh, I started researching myself on gift cards and uh, you know what are what are some liabilities if, if, if something you know on a gift card doesn't get redeemed and and I, I just found this and then sure enough there was a credit card act and we exposed that and that helped us big time so it was really I think the reason we were able to find it was honestly I went back to talking to my customers and hearing them complain about not enough people coming in or people were just using coupons only one time and not coming back and becoming a repeat customer. Nice. So, so that's some real, I mean, that's a really good example of sort of mining the customer base for kind of like hidden needs. And I do think, you know, people, you know, I talk to people too, as well as so people are always looking for ideas. It's like anytime there are either new regulations that are coming out or there are maybe existing regulations that um, people haven't really thought about much, at least about automating how to comply with them that's a potential for like a latent need. So like, you know, right now, um, this, this last couple of weeks, right, there's been all this news about Facebook and there's this new uh, European legislation coming out, GDPR, and there's a lot of vendors that are going to be working on that. But I, I would say like right now, if you're looking ahead, that it's, it's fairly certain that the United States is uh, going to probably create some type of regulation, right? So it'll probably take a, take a while. It's not going to happen overnight. But if you are looking to like for an idea, right, that would be a place to like keep an eye on as this regulations are coming out, like reading up on them. And this is kind of back to like, before you build anything, like some, sometimes you can just do this, like spend a lot of time just learning about something. Cause that can be the differentiation. Like you kind of did it, right. You found this regulation. I don't know you're probably like the expert on it. Right. And then suddenly out of that, um, you've got a really compelling value proposition, especially to large corporations of any kind, right. Cause that's the biggest thing that they're dealing with all the time is like, how do I do this? What do I do? Can you educate me on this? And can you actually help me solve this problem? So I don't know, I guess kudos to you. It sounds like, you know, you did that. And I think that's always like a great place to, to find new ideas. Oh, I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Thanks. So, um, so I think that's, and I, I, you know, when we talk about like large corporations, I think uh, something I see a lot is if you're going to build like a, some type of B2B application, um, I think you do, you can often kind of like go find, maybe not 10, but like, I do think it's possible to find like five people who will possibly pay for it or at least, you know, give you maybe like a letter of intent or just like some strong indication, like if you build this, they would buy it. Right. So um, I think that's a, a really common thing in enterprise software of any kind. And I think it's, it's probably the way a lot of enterprise software starts. Now, what has your experience been on the consumer side? Cause it's a little bit harder, right? Cause you can't, most consumers aren't going to pay for anything uh, up front. Um, and you know, that market is, is just much harder to crack. So have you had any experience there? Like, how do you think of that? Consumers is very tough, but what I've, uh, used in the past that's worked is typically like a survey monkey type of service where you can literally put your questions and you could target a specific demographic interests. And what I loved about that was you have to use it. People only use it once and then they think they have enough information. What you have to do is you have to constantly keep refining your questions. So let's say 
I do a first set of questions. I get that feedback. Now I look at that feedback and then I refine my questions again and send it out. And that exercise, if you do it at least minimum five times, you will know pretty quickly as, uh, what your con ideal consumer looks like. And then you take that information and then you apply it to, okay, how does that mean from a landing page perspective, a website, a messaging, creative, all of that other stuff. But getting feedback is so interesting. Now, we, you know, try doing even your own Facebook ads and targeting people. You'd be, it, that's, sometimes I do that, right? Create a campaign and just see, are people clicking on this? Just come up with some crazy uh, logo and verbiage and see if people will do that. So I think on the consumer side, it's, we have a lot of, there's a lot of great channels out there for us, right? With Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, but it's getting through that noise and properly channeling in that data. Uh, and so bring, using a serv service similar to like a server survey monkey or, or similar, where you can constantly iterate your questions and get that feedback of an ideal consumer. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, the, all of this sort of, I think the entrepreneur is going to be faced with this, this ultimate decision. Like, you know, at what point should they try to build, build some version of the product or idea they have most, most of the time. I mean, I think we use, it's kind of cliche, call it minimal viable product MVP. Um, sometimes, sometimes MVP can mean like, like it really is viable, but I think a lot of times MVP just means like some random thing I wrote on the weekend. So there's like a big, a big variety of MVPs that I think we've all seen out there. But uh, if I, if I am, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm trying to edge up to like, okay, you know, what, what's my gate? What's the real gate? I should just hold myself accountable before I actually say, I'm going to, I'm going to build something. I'm going to pay someone to build it. Or I'm going to do it myself. Like, what do you think they should have already figured out? They should figure out if there's a market for their product. And Sometimes you have to build something right before you can even see if there's a val if, if a, a, a customer is going to buy that. But I always, you know, you, you brought up something interesting, MVP. And to me, that's, that's such a cliche term I feel, because if you really like something, you should just go do it. There's so many times when I just come up with an idea and I just, I don't even think I just do it. And you have to, it's okay to, you know, just go for it and, and fail. And I think a lot of times we, we overthink things, we overanalyze, and we try to talk ourselves out of doing it versus just doing it. And, you know, if you like something and you're still unsure, but you really like the concept, I would say go for it as long as you're financially capable of doing that. And, and so I think it comes down to the bottom line is if you could try something, make sure that you're in a financial state where you can take that risk. And so if you have to get another job or do this on nights and weekends, that's fine. But don't put your, uh, yourself in a, in a tough spot where you're struggling to make payments and, or put, put your family at risk. That, that's, that's to me is the most critical thing out of everything that I've seen from a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think, you know, that cliff, right? I think the idea that sometimes we get in our heads that the only options are, you know, either like you quit your job tomorrow and you devote yourself like 100% to it, you know, potentially facing financial peril, or you just continue to just like work your normal path, right? Like sometimes I think that's sort of that, that false choice, right? So, um, you know, as I like to say sometimes like, you know, maybe it's okay at this point to have like a midlife crisis that's a startup, right? So instead of spending all the money on like a, a sports car or like just a lavish vacation, uh, maybe you try to take that money to like, just go get it out of your system. Like go, you know, take some of that money, save it, build it out to the best you can, give, give it a chance to, uh, 
um, succeed or fail, and then see what happens. So I, I think that's not a bad way to go. Um, so, you know, one thing before we get on, I want to talk about a couple other things before we get out of here. Is just like, what do you see in successful founders? What, um, what does a founder uh, have? You know, is there a specific set of qualities that you think are really, really important for a founder? Or is it just somebody that wants to do it? You know, I think what I've seen is successful founders are, they typically are very humble and open-minded. Um, so they're willing to accept ideas and see, you know, how to prioritize and lead by example. And typically the good founders, they don't just do one function. You have to do everything in the beginning. And that's what makes startups hard. You have to do the accounting, you have to do the tech, you have to do the sales calls, you have to do the demos, the pitch decks. And so a good founder is someone that just doesn't think about those tasks as chores. They just do it because you have to, to survive. And I think also a good founder is someone that uh, is going to lead the company by example and, and try to help bring people on to help their skill sets and grow their careers. Uh, in my past, I brought on interns that have not even done any programming at school, and then they learned it through me and then parlayed that into really nice careers out of college. So you have to, I think, give good, it's all about good leadership, good guidance, and also good work ethic. Um, you know, being the first one up, being the last person to go to bed and, and just, just the constant grind because that's what separates really the successful companies from these, the ones that don't make it. You have to have that work ethic. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes I think I've heard this phrase. It's sometimes the things that separates people. It's just like somebody decided to just keep going, right? Like that was, that was, it wasn't like they didn't get discouraged. It wasn't like they were a genius. They just kept going, right? They just didn't give up. And so, um, and there's a fine line. I think there's a fine line between like persistence and, and maybe kind of like foolishness, right? So I think that's probably what everybody who starts a company is, is, is trying to figure out. But uh, to your earlier point, right? I think it's like, if you can uh, not bankrupt yourself, if you can, you know, enjoy that work, right? Seeing an idea come to fruition, then it's, it's probably worth going to do. If, if, you know, if you don't have that, then, then probably not, right? Maybe it's time to wait it out and, and, and save up and, and get yourself in a position in your life where you go take that chance. Okay. All right. Well, listen, you know, one thing I know you're pretty passionate about, and maybe we'll do a little case study here, right? Because uh, is blockchain, right? So everyone's talking about blockchain. I think it's uh, something that, you know, you've gotten into a little bit. So we won't go into it. I think most people listening to this know what blockchain is. So we're not going to try to go through some long description, but I think it, what is what is interesting is how are you approaching blockchain and how are you thinking through what potential products or services uh, that you think the blockchain market in mass needs? So, you know, blockchain, since I come from the mobile payments background, to me, this is the next mobile payments. Blockchain, does, they ad addresses this industry. And right now, blockchain is so early. This is an early adopter technology. And people are, unfortunately for blockchain in the, the space, the ICOs have created um, unnecessary bad publicity on the blockchain world. But when the dust settles, uh, blockchain will be here to stay. So it's a long-term play. And so some of the applications I think are going to happen is you're going to see a, a lot more involved in banking uh, and payments uh, into, into loyalty. And those are things that are going to happen probably, I would say, three to five years. And so the technology is, to me, equivalent to when the internet came out. This is the next evolution. And now it's waiting for the dust to settle through a lot of the legal things going on. 
and also waiting for the use cases to finally be uh, matured enough to handle blockchain as well as the consumers. You talk about is there consumer adoption? There isn't here in the US, but outside of the US and Europe and other parts of the world, people are using this a lot more. And so I think what's happened is we get in, closed in what's going on in the US, but outside of the US, there's a lot of blockchain activity, uh, Bitcoin, a lot of the cryptocurrency, a lot of things happening. And so this is, I think, gonna be the future. So what are you doing as far as, you know, cause I think you're, you're certainly, you know, everything you said there, I think hundred percent true, right? Sort of like, Hey, blockchain is emerging, right? And it's definitely outside the U S. So is there anything you are specifically doing or you would recommend to people? It's like, okay, if you're interested in this, um, I think, you know, I guess, let me say, let me ask the question this way, things that maybe aren't so obvious. Cause I think there's a lot of these ICOs and I don't know, they, they seem to be kind of really sketchy right now. Um, like, where are you focusing your time? Is it sort of like the tools and services around maybe financial institutions adopting blockchain? Is it something totally different than that? Like what, where, are you, where are you trying to find your niche in this, this big world? So my niche is there's a company uh, called uh, BCI Labs, um, blockchain company that I've been advising for about four years. The founder who actually went with me to uh, UT, he um, created the blockchain technology, has patents in this. Uh, and what our play is, we're a platform play. We're basically, think of anytime uh, a shareholder wants to do a vote to another shareholder on any concept, we are the voting proxy engine. So that's our play. We're focused, I think, more on the platform side, on the back end. So going back to what you're talking about, it's a B2B play. Um, we are not focused at all on the consumer stuff. I think if someone wants to get into the consumer world, it would have to be more on the payment side of building a mobile wallet that does take that does leverage uh, Bitcoin. But my play is more of I want to be part of something where there's I'm the infrastructure and platform that enables what already uh, an existing organization is utilizing from a workflow perspective. It makes sense. So it's really, you know, in your case, you've gone out and done some work to find some someplace where a distributed letter, ledger and like all this voting, right, of proxies is, is probably fairly complicated today. So you can maybe make that a lot simpler. So I think that's like to me, um, I don't even think of like so much the word blockchain anymore. I just think of myself as always looking around like distributed ledger. Like where is a place where there's like a need for distributed trust and a distributed ledger? Like if you just sort of like wander around the world, <laughs> you know, asking those questions and maybe places that aren't even thinking about that, right? That is maybe the place to potentially open up some new opportunity. Um, but I think, you know, like, as you were saying earlier, I think we were talking about earlier, it's like probably the trick there is to like not fall in love with the technology too much, right? It's like, well, I mean, it is very cool, but um, to your like earlier points, if we can't find 10 people that want to do it, then we may like the technology more than, than it's really, you know, solving a, a specific problem. So that's cool. All right. Well, listen, we're almost out of time here, but um, a couple of things. One, where can people find you uh, if they have a great startup idea and they want to uh, potentially engage you and help you out, uh, have you help them build out uh, their product and, and their go-to-market strategy? Yeah. So I have a couple sites. Um, my own personal site, which is chiefwinningofficer.com. Uh, <laughs> that is a great site. I like that already. Perfect. If you want to win in, in, in startups and in companies, uh, you can go to chiefwinningofficer.com. And 
you could kind of see what I've done in my past of some of the customers I've worked with, as well as it kind of shows my background. And uh, it does everything from technology development, marketing, um, uh, helping build investor pitches and decks and uh, strategic uh, uh, development. So we, we cover all, all those areas. Uh, and then austinsoftwareconsulting.com is more of what we do on a technology perspective. And you know, if you already have an idea or you have an application and you need help on getting it to next level or you need help changing it, uh, we can help there. So austinsoftwareconsulting.com. And then I have my own main project that I'm focused on called All Star Pick, which I'm building a platform that connects uh, professional athletes to anyone around the world. And so you're seeing now that uh, a lot of professional athletes are are not just focused on the sport, but they're trying to find other revenue sources and streams. And I'm basically think of athlete on demand. If you want to talk to an athlete or you want your kids to talk to him and get a, a expert advice, I'm creating that platform. But uh, as you can tell, I'm pretty busy. But uh, chiefwinningofficer.com and austinsoftwareconsulting.com are my main two uh, sites you guys can find me at. That's pretty exciting. Sounds like you're in some, some fun stuff. I know um, Kevin Durant, right? I think he's done, starting to do like a lot of, uh, I mean, I think all the major athletes are doing some kind of different ventures, but I was just reading about some of his uh, business plans. So I don't know, I guess I just got to ask, like, who's the biggest athlete um, you've met? Have you met anyone like super famous? You know, I met, um, fortunate for me, I've met, because uh, my other partner, Nick O'Hearn, who's a former PGA golfer, uh, he's, he's opened up the doors. And one of the guys who's actually on our board of advisors is a gentleman named John Hart, who uh, was, was recently the president of Atlanta Braves. And um, he actually was the GM of the Cleveland Indians back in uh, the 90s and created the Moneyball concept. So he's one of our big guys. And he's so awesome to talk to and just very inspirational. So um, he's been one of the big guys that we've been working with. Um, and then Quietly, we're working on some other strategic people that I can't say yet, but we're, we're starting to kind of like, you know, you talk about validation. I was trying to validate if athletes would come on board. And sure enough, that was not a problem. <laughs> now I'm taking a step back and getting all the product ready to start to onboard the, the influx of guys that want to come on. Well, that sounds exciting. I look forward to hearing some, uh, some stories. It'll be fun to have like some professional athletes, you know, on these, uh, uh, I guess, uh, product calls with you telling you how to build software. That would be, uh, that would be quite funny to hear. So, all right. Well, for those, uh, those listening, hopefully you've enjoyed another edition of uh, software defined interviews, but if you didn't get enough, you should always go over and subscribe to our software defined talk podcast. It's a weekly roundup of all the news and enterprise tech, and you can, go to that by going to softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can join us in Slack. You can even buy some t-shirts. If you want to save a little money, you can use the discount code SDTFSG. Again, that's SDTFSG for 20% off. And if you don't want to spend any money and you don't want a newsletter, but you want something free, if you email us your name and address at stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, I will send you a free sticker that you can hopefully put on your laptop. And Satish, thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks and for having me, Brandon. Absolutely. And we will talk to you next time.